Welcome to another episode of Thoughts of a Techno Wizard. It is Thursday, April 28th, 12.25pm, 2022. <laughs> and uh, there's a lot I want to talk about today. So, another nice day. Gonna be jumping all over the place. Please bear with me. <laughs> so, some things I want to try and cover today is... Um, some ideas once again talking about evolution and how we gained intelligence in terms of how that how that um how the propaganda of our ancestors as you know some dumb cavemen doesn't really make sense in terms of evolution right so i want to cover that um i want to cover i've been watching some more lex friedman um great there's a great kind of uh he calls it a debate but it doesn't really seem like a debate <laughs> With um, Lee Cronin and um, uh, shoot, I forgot her names. Um, talking about like alien life and biology and assembly theory and stuff like that. Now, I honestly don't. I, I'm not even keeping up with them for a lot of this conversation. I'm gonna be honest with you. But um, there are some things they they mentioned talking about free will and and uh, um, the kind of philosophies around life and all this other stuff that I do want to touch on a little bit. Um, granted, again, they, they're the experts here, so it's just the, the ravings of a of an amateur uh, thinker, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I just want to talk about it. That's it. Um, <laughs> and then uh, I wanted to cover a little bit about society and like what society could look like, right? What a better reality could look like. What a better modern life could look like if we were a more egalitarian culture um but yeah so those are more or less the things i want to try and cover today maybe some other stuff we'll see so for for this first topic i got to thinking the other day as i was reading my newsletter on my uh my youtube channel you know for those short-ish um kind of read-throughs of my blog or, or my newsletter go check that out um I got to the part, the section of my newsletter where I was talking about technology and science technology and how life wasn't actually short, brutish, and, you know, um, what's, the, what's the term? Miserable, right? Um, back in the day, right? So the common, the common assumption for history is that our ancestors, you know, prior to civilization, right? ancestors lived miserable lives they had you know a short life expectancy of like 25 to 30 years you know um life was terrible there was people were violent and warring and all this other stuff and then the state came right we have state government and that's what uh gained that's what gave us some peace right and that's why we need government today because without it we'd be miserable in the dirt and you know, <laughs> always worried about some other person coming to take our shit, right? So <laughs> that's kind of sort of the propaganda. That's not even kind of sort of. That is the propaganda that, you know, we get told throughout all of our entire lives, right? From from early childhood <laughs> until, you know, today, until like even adulthood. You got Peter, P, P, ah, folks like, um, what's his face? Um... Uh, what's his name? Goodness, I've got his name too, but uh, Peterson, you know, that, yeah, that dude who's always saying this crap about, you know, whatever. 
you get my point though like this is the <laughs> this is the propaganda that's out there um and the reason why it's propaganda is because it's not actually served by data there's no there's there's pretty much no anthropological or ar- archaeological data that suggests that any of this is true or at least, at least most of this is not is, is is not true so i've talked about this a lot before i won't go too much into that aspect um but i will say just to recap real quick it, we did not we we always lived pretty decent lives right for as long as we can we can look back into these hunter-gatherer cultures um, based on the current hunter-gatherer cultures that exist based on the data that we can see like the the um, evidence of nutrition that we can see in people's bones from the people who died based on um, the ways that people died we can actually see that most hunter-gatherer cultures lived pretty decent lives right like um there was no they didn't die by old age by the age of 25 or 30 that was that's complete you know misrepresentation of the data um what we mean by life expectancy is actually incorporates childhood mortality right so people die at a young age right when they're children when they're babies that actually brings the life expectancy down the average life expectancy because it's an average it's a mathematical model (laughs) um but in the in the archaeological data we can actually see that people have existed or people have uh um stayed alive for as much as 60 70 sometimes longer um into old age right However, what we do see is them dying by disease or infanticide at a very young age. So uh, we have, we can, we we figure it's roughly 50% child mortality, which is terrible. Don't get me wrong. It's not, it's not like it's a good thing. However, we don't know how much of that is actually infanticide. And infanticide is basically the early kind of ages of um, abortion, right? Like if you trying to if you're having a child and you don't actually want that child for for any reason like you can't raise them or you're raped or whatever like you <laughs> you have an abortion right but of course and and um ancient times when you can't stop an abortion before it happens then um <laughs> the child you know gets killed early on and you might you know say what you want about that but the fact is that you have to take this into consideration when you're when you're you know trying to see how well people lived back then right um and it's something to to really understand another part of this is that we know that people did not have to work the entire time just to find food right these people weren't desperate for food yes they they um went to find food almost every day or every couple of days but that doesn't necessarily mean they were desperate. Just like you go to the store to find food, you know, every week <laughs> doesn't mean that you're necessarily desperate for food, right? Likewise, they saw the environment around them as like a grocery store. <laughs> but instead of having to pay for something, you just picked it, right? You, you didn't have to pay for anything. So if anything, it's like a free grocery store, even better than what we have today. The main problem is trying to figure out what's poisonous and what's not. Or, you know, what you want to eat that day or how you want to prepare it, you know, things like that. Um, but nonetheless, you know, they, we don't really see any evidence of people dying from um, starvation in, hunter, in these hunter-gatherer cultures. And in fact, we actually see 
um, more people dying during the early ages. And when I say early ages, I mean the first couple thousand years of agriculture, <laughs> right? Of civil of a city living. What we also see, another thing that you might hear, is that um, city living was better than hunter-gatherer culture, right? That it was a development, that it was, quote-unquote, progress. But if it was progress, then why do we see, and this goes all the way up until today, a huge amount of people leaving cities <laughs> in order to go back and live a nomadic, you know, hunter-gatherer lifestyle, right? We actually see a huge amount of this. And it's to the point where a lot of archaeologists and anthropologists suggest that um, places like China, who erected that huge, those huge walls, actually erected it more so to keep the people in than it was to keep the people out, to keep the, you know, quote-unquote barbarians out. <laughs> um, because when people are in a settled, you know, agricultural environment, they're easier to tax they're easier to find. They're easier to to take their shit. Like <laughs> you can you can colonize and imperialize them more when they're you know in these um, little uh, farms that you know where they're going to be every year. You know when they get their food. You know all this other stuff. But for hunter gatherer cultures, they're very um, out there, right? Every they may not get the same food all the time. They they're moving around all the time. So you can't just tax them. You can't <laughs> force them to give them. Uh, to give you their stuff. So it was actually in the interest of empires, of imperialists, to try and limit the 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 uh, movement of people. Right? So, um, and it gets even worse. Like, a lot of these cities were extremely um, um, disease-ridden, right? The first epidemics came from cities, Right, like it, no many people knew very much about how to avoid sickness. They didn't just, <laughs> you know, um, just do stuff with that. They saw somebody get sick and they moved out the way. But when people were stuck in these uh, cities, then you had a, you had a, you had a, a what you call it. Densification. I don't. I don't know. You had a more with more people in a in a closer area. You had a higher density of people and a higher. Um, I'm losing my words today. Goodness. You had a higher amount of disease, essentially, right? And that disease comes from um, would cross from different animals. I forgot the words for it, but <laughs> um, this is why we started to have have um, cross. We call it zoo, zoo biological, like cross species of viruses and things like that, where um, a lot of our sicknesses came from pigs and horse and chickens and cows and all the things that pastoralists and, and these city dwellers, you know, were using. So all that to say is that the, the idea that we have, quote unquote, progressed right from this barbarous, you know, this primitive culture to these complicated city structures and government and states is actually propaganda, right? It's not that linear at all. It's, it's a constant back and forth. It's a give and take. It's a um, pros and cons, things that we're losing and gaining, right? And for a long time, we've lost a lot more than we gained uh, living in these cities and states. And in fact, one can maybe even still make that argument that we've lost more than we think we've gained. We actually think we've gained more than what we've actually gained, all right? 
So anyways, uh, <laughs> I spent way too long on that. But what I actually want to talk about on this topic is the fact that if you view barbarian, quote unquote, well, if you view our ancient ancestors as quote unquote barbarians, as as cavemen, right, as simpletons who could only, you know, struggle to survive, struggle to find food and water every single day, then you're not actually being scientific, right? Here's what I mean by that. Why did we gain a brain at all? Or rather, why did we gain a, a complicated brain that can think, you know, above and beyond, that can imagine, that can um, simulate things, right? Why did we gain sentience? Right? Just think about that for a second. And realize that we have created a system of language far before we even, you know, that was, uh, they suggest that language may have been one of the first kind of technologies that we invented as a sentient creature. And this was before we were Homo sapiens. This is going all the way back to um, Homo erectus, right? The first couple hominids. Right? So it goes back at least a million years, maybe even more, in which we came up with language, in which we started using tools, in which we started using fire. Right? And if you understand this, then you begin to see how absolutely kind of ridiculous it is to assume that hum- humans who have been alive 100,000 years ago or 200,000 years ago we're dumb. We're just struggling every single day just to survive. Because if you look into nature, most animals are not even struggling like that. Right? Don't get me wrong. A lot of animals are. And every day they look for things. But even like the apex predators, for instance, you know, a lion or something like that. They would only hunt maybe once a week or two weeks or something like that. And they can feed off of that, you know, that carcass or their, their hunt for a good long while <laughs> and then the rest of the time they're just sitting around you know they just <laughs> they just play around with the kids you know all this other stuff I and mean, this is lot this is this is not even hominids right and now if you think about humans or hominid creatures realize that we have gained this ability to be sentient to tell stories to have language to use tools for actually a million years at least right so, what were we doing all that time? If it only, like hunter-gatherer cultures, we know that they probably took anywhere from two to four hours a day looking for food. And even then, it was only like two to four days a week looking for food. Right? So, what do you do with all that other time? Right? What do you do with it? <laughs> you, you think they just, you know looking for food for 24 hours or for you know 18 hours of the day or for even you know the 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 closest the most um like time everything we can find i found at least so far is uh the estimation that they took roughly 16 hours um a day for finding food and then preparing food and cooking food and eating food right (laughs) um but that uses current hunter-gatherers who were kind of stuck in these really small bands that and really small territories due to you know industrialization 
um, and we've taken much of their land that they used to use. So it takes more effort to find um, food and to prepare food than it used to. Um, now, some people say this is offset by the fact that some of them use, utilize modern, you know, kind of science and or, or tools in order to do small scale farming and stuff like that. But many of these places don't use any of that farming. And furthermore, many of these peoples actually had more advanced ways of sustainable farming than we do today. Right. Precisely because a lot of the farming techniques that we use today is very myopic. It's, it's, it's meant to maximize how much uh, yield we get in a small amount of time, but at the cost of yield from that same land over a 10 year period or a 20 year period versus many of these folks that use um, food forests or, or um, horticulture and stuff like that or permaculture they were able to sustain their yields um, consistently for generations, right? So they have very advanced ways of uh, farming, if you want to look at it like that. But either way, my point here is that if you view humans as primitive, as quote-unquote primitive, you know, for most of human history, for 100,000 years, 200,000 years, what do you think they were doing? Why did they even have this brain power that we have today? Right, like this is a this is a very <laughs> big thing we need to think about. Like, if you if you think that humans were just sitting around, you know, struggling for food for most of their life, for most of their day, then why do they have a brain like <laughs> that's so um, energy intensive? You know, other animals. Who scavenge for food or look for food every single day don't have a don't need a huge brain to do it, right? I think it's what almost twenty to twenty five percent of our energy goes towards our brains. That's a huge, huge investment, right? And so we have to realize that, in actuality, we have been thinking about things. We have been thinking. We have been doing art. We have been creating, you know, stories. We have been inventing things. For far longer than we give ourselves credit. Those quote unquote cavemen weren't just, you know, struggling for food for most of the day. They were making stories. They were making art. They were trying to invent things. They were discovering. They were exploring. They were thinking. Right? They were creating culture. And what we're seeing now is like the payoff, if you will. But you can even argue that they probably did, you know, experience payoffs um, during that entire time. The problem is that we don't know what that is. We haven't been able to find what that is. And I worry that a lot of that is not just because of we can't find it, but because we aren't even looking. I worry that because people, you know, expect to find... Um, primitive stuff and nothing advanced or even define you know what they do as primitive as opposed to looking at it from the perspective of how advanced it could be right for the context that it's in then we could be actively ignoring or even destroying the evidence of their lifestyle and because of that we're destroying our own history 
We're destroying our own wisdom. So sort of tangentially related to that is this um, conversation uh, Lex Friedman had with these folks about aliens and stuff like that. Some interesting things that kind of sort of relate to this. Oh, no, actually, before I get to the aliens, I'm going to skip over to, to that one and get to the one with AI. So I haven't finished the video yet. I'm almost done, but um, near the further end of like two hours into this interview, um, they're talking about how um, AI, like Lee Cronin, I think I agree with some of what he's saying here, and that AI specifically things like uh gpt is or whatever is it gpt i don't know but yeah <laughs> it's unlikely to create the type of intelligence and creativity that we see in humans all right it's most likely will not create the type of intelligence and creativity that we see in humans now i i disagree with the reason why so cronin says um it the reason it won't is because they don't create novelty Right, and he defines that sort of as I don't know something about architecture, but how I translate it is um, creating new things that does not that is not logically consistent with um, what you think what, what you have before you. So, for instance, when we're being creative, right, you can you can have two elements like a rock and a you know flower, and you can logically say that you know. Um, if you put the rock on top of, or the flower on top of the rock, you know, you have a little rock with a flower on it. Um, you can also crush the flower with a rock and then you can get some paste and I don't know what you do with that. But it would be very creative, but logically inconsistent. In, in now, this is my own example. I'm not sure if this is exactly what he was intending, but how I interpreted it. Um, but yeah, it would be very, very creative if you actually, you know... Um, got a bunch of flowers and 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 wrap them around the rock and use that as you know a pillow or something like that <laughs> i don't know um <laughs> but the point here is that like with creativity you can have you can create things you can create novel things that you would not think would be possible with what you had before right more or less this is how i'm understanding what they say about novelty in terms of assembly theory. Um, now, again, I don't 100% understand what they mean by assembly theory. It's, it's very a lot of complicated words, but <laughs> um, nonetheless, the reason why I disagree with with that idea that you know AI can't create novelty or doesn't surprise you or whatever is because it does surprise you, right? Um, and he argues that it's it's actually a result of a kind of artifact of the creators of that AI. That might surprise you with with things, and that's cool, but it's not the AI, AI itself. However, and I'm surprised, you know, um, Lex didn't bring this up. You can have some really interesting, and I, I might even say creative things with AI, where they're procedurally generating things that you would not expect to really see. Granted, a lot of that procedural generation, especially over a long period of time, or even like with a, a a set amount of things that aren't that don't have enough seating, right? They don't have enough, you know, creative stuff in there or unique stuff in there rather, I should say. Um does look samey, right? 
you can see this with things like everything from crypto to um, video games to you know um, some of the quote unquote art they're creating and stuff like that the GPT AI is creating but you can also see that like if you use one of these um, softwares where you can, it randomizes a picture for you they can be very creative in a way <laughs> granted it's up to your interpretation of how you view that thing but I think the kind of a, a, a bigger problem with AI in terms of intelligence is that it's currently being trained based on the artifacts of our own knowledge of our own intelligence as opposed to the actual process of intelligence and a lot of that is because we don't really understand intelligence we don't actually have a good definition of it we, we have all these kind of theories and, and stories about it but it's, none of it is really explanatory it's, it's, it's truly satisfying and what I mean by artifacts is take once again AI and GPT with neural networks and stuff like that how it works you know is it you take a bunch of data and then you have the machine you know or you you label a lot of that data right and then you have the machine try to predict which one's good and bad or what or you know whether or not those labels are ac accurate um, now there's a bunch of different ways some people even can do this without labeling the data um, and you have some where the neural networks are teaching the other neural networks and all this other stuff it's very interesting but the point here with all of this, no matter how, which way you way you look at it, is that it's using artifacts. It's using results of our own intelligence, right? Like things that we have created and say, yes, that's it. Or even not, not even things that we created, but like if you just use nature out there, right? It's using the external stuff that we, you know, interpret as as um as a way to teach it how to be intelligent, as a way to teach it knowledge or, or whatever. The problem with that is that this, that's not really what intelligent intelligence is, right? That's not even the experience of intelligence. That's the result of being intelligent, right? All the things that we see, all the things that we label, all the things that we contextualize, right? All the things that we have knowledge of or whatever, that we create data of, that, you know, all of that is just the result of our intelligence the actual experience the if you will the phenomenology if I can use that word of intelligence is more of a process right it's a thing that we experience it's a, it's a and this is why it's so hard to really define it to really say you know what it means to be intelligent because it is an experience Now, I'm not going to say I can define intelligence, but I do want to take a stab at, <laughs> you know, pointing us in a direction of, uh, of an interesting thing to look at. I think a better thing to kind of explore for creating artificial intelligence is to try and create some sort of system, some sort of um, robot or whatever that can experience the world right that can look at something a tree or a picture or anything and then try and communicate to us in its own words what it is seeing or what it is quote unquote experiencing right 
and that's that's a lot that's a, that's a lot of things that we're skipping here because then you still have to teach you know a robot or create a way for something to communicate but i think that's actually a better way to do this kind of project right and i know i'm not an expert or i might just be talking to my ass like <laughs> but i honestly think that this is this is one of the parts about creativity right <laughs> is that and this is why a lot of experts kind of get stuck and this is something that you see throughout history like a lot of inventions are created either by accident or by people who were new to the field or by experts who were trying to think in a completely different way right who were trying to not going to say abandon but put that aside they were putting aside a, a lot of their assumptions for what they thought was possible and going into the field of what's impossible what's crazy and, and just playing with things right and so let me play a little bit what i mean to say here is about artificial intelligence is imagine us creating you know a bot that can that is very similar to how we ourselves are created and that it is it has it is made of a bunch of atoms, you know, a bunch of molecules that are each doing their own thing. And those molecules, you know, assemble, if you will, you know, come together to create a larger thing, a larger compound, a larger um, system. And then those come together with even more things to create an even bigger system, right? And so on. It kind of snowballs, right? But each of those things within that system, each has, you know, a very simple goal of simply reproducing, right? And even that goal is not something that they are, you know, explicitly set to have. It's more so, it's more so, hmm, a sort of attempt at living, right? An attempt at at trying to maintain its process, right? It's, it's homeostasis, it's balance, right? As it tries to maintain its balance of doing this thing that is that is that is doing, then it you you I'm trying to basically see how we can kickstart the, the evolutionary cycle in a, in a computer, right? And this may this may be something that's you have to be very careful about because it can it quickly get out of control. But that's kind of life in and of itself. That's the problem of life and the beauty of life is that it gets out of control, right? It's not something that can be controlled. It's And whenever you try to control it, you just create more problems <laughs> and uh, for yourself and others. You can destroy a lot of the things, um, unfortunately. But anyways, I don't know. I think it would be interesting to see if we can basically kickstart evolution, right? In a robot, in a in an AI. And let it kinda of like, you know, Conway's game of life, right? And we see that kind of sort of works. But to go a step beyond that, then we have to also um enable the possibility for things to um cooperate. Right for things to compete in a way that's collaborative. 
because I think that's a lot of the aspects that we're even missing in quote many um, propagandic you know ideas of evolution is that it's all about competition but really it's not and if you, if you look into a lot of these evolutionary theories you see it's uh, very heavily based on collaboration as well based on cooperation right the competition is only you know in the context of how well something can cooperate or collaborate so you have to enable that in a computer such that you have these different systems that each have their own quote unquote goal of you know maintaining their own life their own homeostasis but they have the possibility of working together and then forming you know a new species a new thing a new compound right by working together in increasingly more complicated and intricate ways right more interconnected ways I think if we are able to do that then we can eventually come to a point where these systems then try to communicate and at that point you know as they try to communicate with each other we can introduce ourselves as a system to be communicated with and then doing and in so doing you know there's an organic you know attempt of it trying to communicate with us of it trying to learn our own language right I'm not sure if I'm making sense with any of that but <laughs> essentially I'm calling for a more organic you know way of creating AI as opposed to a more organic bottom up approach as opposed to a top down you know approach and then to build on top of that to go into this idea of aliens something they mentioned is how um you know aliens m- would probably be interested in us right because you know it's you would think that seeing another species seeing going to another planet and seeing things um create itself or create things would be very interesting oh here we go her name is sarah walker goodness yeah so sarah walker was talking about how um um aliens would be interested in in us like should be interested in us uh, you would think because life itself seems to be special or or especially you know our type of life right our ability to create things and all this other stuff uh, seems to be special and they would be curious about that and come to say hi or whatever right my problem with that is like i mentioned before a couple episodes back when i was on the topic um sorry um is is ants right ants are very interesting and maybe most life forms on this earth right ants though create things they create their own little houses and and even like farms in some way they go to war um over their territory now granted a lot of that is just automatic you know that you probably doesn't doesn't really think about it but from our perspective they are interesting and you know, they create things but even our attempts to communicate with an ant is like completely stymied like it's <laughs> we have no idea if an ant is understanding us and most people don't really think about ants don't really consider them you know something that you have a conversation with 
or another example is trees right i was just like i've always liked trees but it wasn't until a couple days or weeks ago and i spoke about this before before as well turns out that trees communicate the trees are extremely talkative right they're all they're all connected in this um, mycelium network underground and we've you know started actually being able to measure the fact that they have some sort of language that seems to be on par with human language with english with german right but we don't know what they're saying we don't know what they're talking about and as soon as you try to bring up you know you know maybe they're sentient or maybe they're this that and the other you know scientists oh no way where, where did they have to talk about you know they have nothing to talk about except for you know the food that they're getting or whatever right but who are we to say we have no idea what trees could be talking about we have no idea if they if it's impossible for them to be sentient because our own idea of sentience only exists in our own minds right to the point where you know this is going to a bit of philosophy with uh, what's his name Descartes right where he's saying like I think therefore I am I haven't read his stuff I want to read it but from what I understand he came up with this because he wanted to try and get down to something that is undoubtable that's indubitable right that you cannot cast doubt upon and the only thing that you cannot cast doubt upon is I think therefore I am it's like I exist you know because I'm thinking I'm thinking because I exist right anything beyond that you can cast some amount of doubt upon and this is this is like people say oh philosophy blah 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 right but this is like a serious kind of thing we see this now with as we try to create AI and as we try to look for aliens like you you have to consider these things now right like even if for you as another human being or you listening to me you can cast doubt that I exist as in you you know whoever's listening to this can cast doubt that I as a different person separate from you exist Similarly, I can cast doubt that any of my neighbors exist, that you listening to this exist. Alright? Probably unlikely, you probably do exist, but I can cast doubt upon that because, you know, when it comes down to it, I can't see what's going on in your brain. I can't, I have no idea what you're thinking. Or if you're thinking. <laughs> I presume you are, right? Because you look similarly to me and I can, you know, um, assume that we probably have similar, you know, type of experiences. But I can't actually prove that, right? It's technically unscientific right now. Like, we, we don't currently have a way to prove if two humans or any humans, right, actually share similar experiences. What we can, what we can prove is, or at least, you know, seem to prove, or at least have some data for, right, is that we have similar artifacts that may indicate that we probably have similar experiences. I'll give you a great example. Aphantasia. I spoke about this before too. Right? It's, it's so interesting in that we are just now realizing that there are some people who don't have a visual imagery. And I may be on the spectrum, right? Where before we kind of assumed that imagination was this ability to think up a picture in your mind. Right, and because of that, you can create things. You can, you know, think about things and all this other stuff. Right, 
But there's people with aphantasia who literally do not create a visual image. If you give, say, think about an apple. They can think about an apple, but not the actual picture of an apple. We know something is going on in their brain, but we don't know what. And what's really crazy about this is that they can still be extremely creative. We have like one of the leading artists, one of the leading people, a creative artist at Disney, has aphantasia, where they cannot, he cannot think of pictures in his mind, and yet he created, you know, things like Toy Story and shit like that. Like it's <laughs> so this shows us that creativity is not. You know, or rather, imagination is not what we thought it was. So the experience of imagination, right? The experience of, of living, of existing, of thinking is not really certain. Like, we don't exactly know how what that is or how to describe it or how to define it. Right? And they came up with a test recently where they actually, were able to actually see that people with aphantasia... Um, their eye pupil, pupils, right? Their pupils in the eye does not dilate, implying that they are not seeing an image in their mind. Because people who who do see an image in their mind, their pupil actually dilates as if they were looking at the actual image in real life. Because of course, when you see an image in real life, the light is hitting and reflecting your eye, and so your eye dilates, right? And similarly, when we imagine a visual picture. In our minds Our eye behaves the same way It dilates As if we were seeing that picture in real life That in and of itself Is extremely interesting That shows a lot about how our mind and our bodies Is incredibly interconnected in that. And there's a couple other things in this space too Like whenever you remember something Your eye goes Your pupil specifically Goes in the direction of where Of where that thing was when you first saw it Right which is super interesting But yeah This shows us that with aphantasia It is real Like there are people Who seem to have no Picture visual imagery And I say I may be one of this Because I described before Whenever I think about an apple I see it very vaguely Like I could barely kind of See the thing But when my partner does Like she can think about everything Like the, the picture the, the the shade of the cube And the the drips on the water Like the water drips on the apple All this other stuff Like I can't do that It just doesn't come to mind But As you might You know As I like to imagine I, I think I have a very vivid imagination As in I can come up with a whole bunch of I can come up with an entire world All sorts of inventions and ideas in my mind But The Visual acuity of those things May not be Crisp Right And that still That doesn't seem to take away From my Creative ability Right Or at least I, I hope not <laughs> All that to say When we think about trees Or AI or aliens We have to consider the fact that There may be Types of sentience or intelligence Or creativity or imagination Or whatever That we simply do not have The ability to even perceive Or conceive Or you know Consider and that's very scary, very worrying, maybe even sad. But at the same time, it's very beautiful. It's extremely amazing that life is so insane, right? <laughs> it's so open and wild and, and unique and creative and, 
you know, expansive that there can be forms of life that exist similar to us in that they are, you know, reproducing and living and whatever, right? But we don't really have the abilities to really perceive them at this time, right? And I like what, what Sarah said on this. She said, she said that maybe we, we might develop, right, just because we don't have the capabilities to do so now doesn't mean we will never be able to understand them or see them or, or communicate with them, right? Because similarly, like, think about space itself or, you know, uh, or micro, micro, uh, like, bacteria and things like that, right? Prior to the microscope, we had absolutely no way of knowing that there existed billions, trillions, like, countless micro life forms on this earth living alongside us. In fact, they make us, right? <laughs> All these life forms, like we would not exist without these micro life forms that we cannot physically see. We would never have been able to see them, perceive them, like imagine what that life could be like if we had not created the technology to be able to see um, on, a, on a scale that was far smaller than we ever thought anything could exist. Like, you would be extremely crazy to have ever, you know, um, said that, hey, maybe, you know, if you you look at this grass, maybe there's little life forms in there, right? (laughs) Smaller than the smallest grass. Maybe in your hair, there exists a whole bunch of, like, a whole ecosystem of life, you know? (laughs) People are like, what the hell? What? How does it make any sense? It doesn't make logical sense, Right? That's creativity, if you will. But now it's it, it's it's a no-brainer. Like, yeah, of course, bacteria exists, right? Even though we can't see it with our physical eyes, like we have to use these tools in order to see it. Likewise, I would caution us to to um, dis disregard, to ignore the possibility that trees might be sentient. Or that there exists some type of life on this earth that we don't know the full scope of, right? I'm not going to say that life we that we don't know about. Like, I'm not saying that there exists on the same planet, you know, a type of life form that we've um, that might be sentient in a, in a in a way that we literally can't perceive. Like, I'm walking next to an alien right now. Um, like I used to. I used to consider that and maybe that can still be a thing I don't know I don't know but I do like Sarah's um, ideas on this too like how she mentioned that it's unlikely that or it's probably impossible for two different origins of life to coexist on the same planet as in like there's a carbon based life form and a silicon based life form on the same planet and they never or almost never you know um, coexist or they never inter- interact that's most likely impossible right precisely because life is like you know everywhere like once it's once it starts on the place it begins to spread out all this other and interact in all sorts of ways and they use something called the causal chain meaning meaning like the cause and effect the interactions and things like that um which i definitely i think i agree with however what i do disagree with is their their assertions that time itself must exist that time itself must be fundamental 
right? And that even free will must be fundamental, even though the world is most likely deterministic. So I'm going to end on this, I think, bringing this argument back. But again, I'm saying this not as an expert of anything, but as just a person that likes to think about these things. So I'm probably completely wrong, but it's fun to think about. So <laughs> um, they propose, and again, I'm, I'm not, I'm probably butchering their argument. So go watch this stuff yourself. Lex Friedman interview with uh, Sarah Walker and Lee Cronin. But they propose more or less, that, as I understand, that time is probably fundamental. It probably exists separate than space in a way, at least before the, the Big Bang did. So time predates the Big Bang. And furthermore, you know, free will uh, must exist in order for us to create novelty. In order for us to create new things, right? And the expansion of the universe is like the expansion of this, you know, ability to create new things, more or less, I think, is what they're saying. <laughs> and time itself is like, you know, our ability to create new things, you know, proves that there is a time or, or suggests that there is time because creating new things requires you to have some memory of history some memory of what exists what exists right before and some perception of the present of what exists right now and then a predictions of the future of what can exist but does not exist right now and novelty or creativity or whatever is your ability to take that memory and that perception and that prediction right and then create it like free will is the ability to create what does not exist and they, what they, they I forgot the term they use for this um yeah I forgot the term they use for this but basically something that that t speaks to how it's not logically consistent that that thing could exist right um like many of the inventions that we have it, it doesn't it doesn't really hold that if you have like a house right or bricks. It doesn't really hold that if you have some 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 dirt and some water or whatever that you can mix them together and then form a bricks and then put these bricks together to form a house and all this other stuff. Like it doesn't really. It, it's not re that would it that wouldn't come to being without a an agent like us, like a person with free will, with agency, you know, imagining those things that should not logically exist or do not logically exist and then bringing them together right and then making that stuff happen anyways right bringing it into existence if you will now there are some nuances here of course because this is not saying that you can make impossible things happen right like you may not be able to staple water to a tree um or you know cause yourself to instantly fly without any sort of mechanics or mechanisms <laughs> All right, um, or any a number of things, but it's more so like looking into the the space, like the future of of possible possibilities, and then drawing forth one that you desire, that you like, or whatever that you want to come into existence, and then making it happen. They suggest this is why we have free will, or what, or why free will has to exist, or whatever. Right? I, again, this is my kind of interpretations. I might be wrong on how they're thinking about that nonetheless <laughs> i do disagree with this um for several reasons try to keep this short 
Um, I have nine minutes. <laughs> Number one, I think even by their own definitions or from what I can understand by what they're saying, right? The ability to look at different things and, and, and bring forth one, I think that is in and of itself a deterministic thing, right? Meaning something that is causal, something that is, that is you know, not random, right? Like if you, the very fact that you incorporate history that you incorporate you know things that you have experienced and then incorporate things that you are experiencing now as well as incorporate things that you can imagine as a sort of simulation of what currently exists and what you have experienced right it's a it's a sort of mix and match algorithm like if you will right like if you we we figure that it's it's this goes back to what i um, what creativity is, right? Earlier I was talking about how it can be a thing of you creating novelty, like things that don't currently exist and are unlikely to exist on its own. However, this, I think, ignores the fact that we ourselves are a sort of agent of the universe. Like we are how things come into existence, right? To kind of, to kind of simplify this, um, look at ants once again, right? Without ants, the soil itself would not aerate, right? So, and I'm, I'm keeping this very simple for now. You can you can argue that ants are being creative, are creating some novelty, right? Because you know they're you know moving soil from one area to another and building a pile, right? Building these these ant piles, these things, right? And if you say, oh, they're, they have free will, you know, that means they have free will. That means they're sentient. People, this, this would not be a good, you know, <laughs> argument. Like, it's unlikely that ants are sentient or have free will. Um, not because it's not completely impossible, but because there seems to be no indication of it, right? We don't see anywhere in their you know, um, brains and their neurochemistry that suggests that they even have the capacity for, um, for, you know, sentience or for creativity or things like that, right? Um, it's, and we can actually see that it's, it's, it's a sort of automated process, if you will, right? Like, you see soul in front of you, move that soul, put it to the side, right? It's, it's an algorithm that we can probably even recreate if we if we really tried. Um, likewise, I think a lot of being human is in and of itself a more complex algorithm, right? If you see this, do this, right? However, it's not so simple as there being just one or two or even a hundred, you know, inputs and outputs. There are literally millions billions maybe even trillions of inputs and outputs for any you know step in this algorithm and what that means is that you have a clear determination of what is possible right and you have a set of possibilities that you can call upon but it's still limited by what you are 
right? The fact that we are human, the fact that we can't really perceive what like a, a like tree sentience or an alien or something like that. The fact that we can't even perceive these things is or or microscopic life, right? Bacteria. We can't actually perceive these things with our physical eyes. That in and of itself is a sort of um, proof, right, that we are a limited, you know, constrained, algorithmic being. We have cause and effect. We have, we, we can be, it's determined. It's predetermined, if you will. But the space of that determination, right, the experience of that determination does not mean that we have, um, that it's pointless, I think people oftentimes when they think about the time, think about the fact that we don't have free will or agency or whatever presupposes or or con- or like collapses the experience of free will, the experience of agency. The fact that we don't have free will does not mean that we we don't have like there's no point in making quote unquote what we know as choices because choice is essentially an interpretation of what we are experiencing. It may not be what we are actually doing. Alright? I don't know if I can keep this really short. Because <laughs> there's, there's, there's so many aspects to this. It's like, I think it's li- more likely that everything that can exist does exist. Like, at this moment. There is no, you know... Like all of time, even in and of itself, is just all here. But our interpretations of these things creates the perception of time, creates this movement, this flow of time, because that is how we interpret the universe. And we is a series of self-referential kind of systems. Self-referential meaning that we can, you know, make a change. And then look back and see the change that we just made. And then, you know, look at a number of these changes. And at each one of these points, we put together this theory, this story. That this constellation of things, of events, um, dictates or, 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 you know, comes together in a being that what we call, that we call us, that we call you know, a, a agent, if you will. I don't know if I'm making any sense with any of this, but (laughs) in short, like, I think our experience of agency and free will is essentially the universe being aware of itself, right? To go back to that quote, whoever said that, I think that's one of the best, like, quotes for that. That's one of the best kind of uh, explanations of things. I don't know. I have to end it here. Way over time, but um, yeah, I think thinking about these things in this way will allow us to have an even better appreciation for the universe and create even more accurate predictions and simulations and experiments and this, that, and the other. I don't know. There's a lot more I want to think about this and say about this, but I have to end it there. Get back to work. Um, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, thanks as always for watching, for listening, and or listening rather. And let me know your thoughts, and have a great day. See you. Bye bye.